Well, please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Everyone has what's called a worldview. A worldview is exactly what it sounds like. It's the way you view the world. It's your attitudes and values and interpretation of pretty much everything. In that way, your worldview is like a pair of glasses that you wear all the time without even knowing it. And one of the challenges we face as Christians is ensuring that we have a Christian or a biblical worldview. That we think about everything through the lens of Scripture and our faith in Jesus. But unfortunately, in my experience, some Christians tend to have a worldview shaped more by politics instead. So when we, we see something happening in our country or the world, we see it first and foremost through the lens of our political views. We say, oh, does, does this align with my political party? Should I talk about this? Or, or what does this political voice say about this issue? Or how should I as a conservative or how should I as a liberal think about this topic? And look, I, I've told you many times before, as Christians, we should not be anti-politics. That's not what I'm calling for. I believe the opposite, actually, that because we live in a democracy as Christians, we should be involved politically. Because politics is one of the ways we can love our neighbors and promote justice in our society. And that may mean doing anything from advocating for particular issues, supporting a particular party or candidate, and at the least, exercising your right to vote. So no, I'm not against politics. What I'm against is allowing politics to become the dominant worldview for a follower of Jesus. A Christian worldview certainly has political implications, but that is not the pair of glasses we should be wearing as we look at the world around us. And that is going to be so important for us to remember throughout this series on the image of God. We're going to hit several issues that many people see and automatically label as political issues. Some of these issues are labeled more as conservative. Some of these issues are labeled more as liberal, depending on which side talks about it more. And you might be tempted to think, man, why are we getting political in church? Or others of you might think, oh, I am so glad we're finally getting political in church. <laughs> but hear me, <laughs> this is not a sermon series on politics. My goal in this series is not to tell you how to vote. I'm not going to make underhanded or veiled comments about which political figure I like or dislike. That's not my role or my calling as a pastor. My goal in this series, rather, is to show you how the image of God is massively important to a Christian worldview. This doctrine touches on so many crucial issues that our society is wrestling with today Issues that unfortunately just get couched under the political banner. So if we can get this one thing right, we will better see the world as God intended. And then downstream from that, we will rightly love God and our neighbor. And then, yes, downstream from that, we will indeed engage politically in a way that honors the Lord. But as followers of Jesus, first and foremost, we need a worldview formed more by God and his word than our political preferences. And I was reminded of why that's so important a little over a year ago. We had an opportunity in the state of Kansas last summer 
to pass an amendment to our state constitution, stating simply that we value the lives of every person, including those who are pre-born persons. That amendment would have reversed a decision by the Kansas Supreme Court, which made abortion a constitutional right in our state. And it would have allowed our elected representatives to enact legislation protecting life. So as pastors of Blue Valley, we prayed, we sought the Lord, and we felt compelled, and we decided to speak out to support that amendment that we saw as not political, but as being a moral issue, a biblical issue. And let's just say we got some feedback. <laughs> some, of, some people said to us, since when are we a political organization? We're a church We shouldn't be involved in politics. Others said, hey, this is a women's rights issue. Why are we trying to take a a woman's medical decision away? We got phone calls. We got labeled on social media as one of those far-right churches who should lose their tax exemption status. And one day, I got an email from a reporter from a newspaper in London called The Economist. I thought at first it was a prank, but it was... Real, it was a young lady who reported for the newspaper's podcast, and she had been sent all the way to Kansas to report on the amendment. She found our church's podcast on the subject from a Google search, and she wanted to talk to me about something I said on the podcast, and of course my first thought was, oh boy, what did I say? (laughs) She said that she had never heard someone say that abortion is not a political issue, but a Bible issue. And that's what she wanted to hear more about. And I thought, okay, I can, I can talk a little bit about that. So Amber and I, we invited her to our home in Olathe. She came and sat at our dining room table. And she asked me questions for almost an hour. A few days later, the article was published, and I got quoted one sentence. Uh, that's the way it works, I think. But, but what I explained over the course of that hour is essentially what I want to explain to you today. I want to share what the image of God means for the dignity and value of every life, including the life in the womb. And why ultimately this is not a political issue or a medical issue, but it's a Bible issue. And therefore a topic we need to consider through the lens of a biblical worldview. We said from the beginning of this series that to truly understand the image of God, we need to look at Jesus. Jesus is, was, is the image of God. He's the key to understanding how the image relates to the topic at hand. So let's start with the first of three questions that we're asking each week. Here's the first. Number one, what did Jesus teach? And one thing we need to be honest about up front is that Jesus never explicitly talked about, as far as what was written down in the Gospels, the topic of abortion. But that doesn't mean we can't know what Jesus believed. There are many things Jesus did not directly address or talk about, but we can look at the principles Jesus taught, and I believe we can make a pretty good argument for his view. So let's start with kind of a foundation this morning. We're going to kind of build our way up. And here's the first thing. We can know for sure Jesus taught. Jesus taught that murder is sin. Look with me at Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. We've looked at these verses before. It says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. 
Jesus is here talking about the sin problem of the human heart. He says our actions are merely products of our wicked hearts. And what comes out of the heart? Well, it's all sorts of bad stuff. But for the sake of this point, we see clearly that Jesus taught that murder is wrong. And everyone says, yeah, duh. (laughs) Of course murder is wrong. Every religion and culture in the world would agree. To take the life of an innocent person is morally wrong. But here's the unique thing the Bible does. The Bible grounds the wrongness of murder in the image of God. All the way back in Genesis, Noah gets off the ark, and God recommissions him just as he did Adam and Eve, and he tells Noah why it's important not to take another human's life. Listen to this from Genesis 9, 6. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man. In his own image. God's talking there and he says, because every human life is made in God's image, to take someone's life is the ultimate offense worthy even of capital punishment. To murder is to try and become like God, who alone has authority to give and take life. It's to attack his image, which is really to attack God himself. Again, this is not new or controversial. Murder is a sin. To take the life of an innocent human being is wrong. But the important question for us with this topic is, when does that life begin? When does a human being become an image bearer who is is worthy of protection from murder? Because you see the logic. Once we establish someone's personhood, then we can know it's wrong to harm them or take their life but we're not there quite yet. Let's keep going. Here's the second thing we know Jesus taught. Jesus taught equal human dignity. Again, this makes total sense to us today here in America, but this was one of the most radical things Jesus ever preached. It's the reason Christianity transforms every culture it takes root in. You see, in Jesus' day, just as in all of human history, really, all people were not viewed with equal dignity and respect There were classes of people who were viewed as less than. In fact, in the first century, it was common for Jewish rabbis to pray every morning, and this is a real prayer, thank you, Lord, for not making me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Jesus, who was also a Jewish rabbi, went completely against that way of thinking. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 19. Here's a very short story that we just kind of blow by and we think, oh, that's so cute. And we miss the cultural context that makes it quite radical. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him, Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. That's so sweet. Jesus is good with kids. But no, that's not the point. Jesus is making a revolutionary statement right here. Notice the disciples. What did they do? They, they, they rebuked the parents for bringing the children to Jesus. Why did they do that? Well, children were one of those groups of people who were viewed as less important. Jesus was not to be bothered by unimportant, trivial things like snotty-nosed kids. So the disciples, they rebuked the parents, and Jesus rebuked them. 
And he affirmed the dignity and value and worth of children by saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And Jesus did this again and again. Flip with me again to Matthew chapter 21. Here again, Jesus takes a group of people that were looked down upon, that were less than, and he teaches their equal dignity. This time, it's tax collectors and prostitutes. He's talking to the high and holy Jewish leaders here, and he says something to them that would have made them madder than a wet hen. Matthew 21, verse 31. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Man, think about that. Jesus is telling these highest, holiest, the most religious guys around. He said, the most despised, disgusting, messed up people in your eyes, they're getting in before you. Jesus taught that every person, regardless of their standing in society, who they are, what they've done, how old, how young, they all have equal human dignity because of the image of God they were made in. Okay. You might say, I, I agree with all that, of course, but that doesn't tell us anything about the preborn life. And Jesus believed people walking around bear God's image. But when did Jesus believe a person first begins to bear God's image? Well, we can know he believed they did at the least at birth. This verse in John 16, 21 tells us so. Jesus was making an analogy to his disciples. If you look on the screen, Jesus said this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy. Watch this. That a human being has been born into the world. That phrase human being in our English translations is important. It's the same word used for any other person in the Bible. And Jesus used it to refer to life from the womb. But I believe we can also know what Jesus believed about life in the womb. That it was too a person bearing the image of God. Not because he explicitly said it. We've admitted that. But because of what he viewed as his authoritative source of truth, which was the Old Testament. That was Jesus' Bible, and he quoted from it often. As a young Jewish boy, he would have had it memorized, and it would have formed his worldview. So he would have been intimately familiar with passages like this one from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. It's a prayer to God. It says, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together where? In my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And there's so much there in those few verses, but look at what is made clear. Every person is formed by God himself inside of the womb. That means there is no such thing as an accident. Our days are written in God's book before we even live one of them. He's already got it planned. See, these verses are not about blobs of tissue or clumps of cells or potential humans or less than people. It's abundantly clear that every preborn person is designed by God. And since God designs people in his image, they are image bearers, just as you and me. So when we put all that together, 
I believe we can say with certainty that Jesus believed the preborn life in the womb is a person made in the image of God, and to intentionally end that life is murder and is wrong. Let's ask our second question this morning. Number two, what did Jesus do? We've seen what he taught, but did Jesus do anything that might help us engage this topic from a Christian worldview? I believe he did. Here's the first thing we see that Jesus did. Jesus elevated the dignity of every person. We've already said that Jesus taught equal human dignity, which was unique in his time. But he did more than just talk about it. It seems he made an intentional effort to defend and to lift up those who were looked down upon in society. One of the best examples we have of this is the way Jesus treated lepers. A leper was someone with a skin condition believed to be contagious to others. But it wasn't just a medical issue. In this time, it was a spiritual issue as that person, the leper, was viewed as having been cursed by God. So lepers were banished from society. They were as good as dead, removed from family and friends, forced to live in separate villages outside the community. They could not worship in the temple. And anywhere they went where other people were, they had to shout out, unclean, unclean, so as to warn people of their infecting presence. That makes it remarkable when we see Jesus do things like we see in Luke 17. A group of lepers met Jesus, but it says they were standing far off. Like they were so used to being less than, they wouldn't even come close. But it says Jesus saw them and he cleansed them. In another story in Matthew, Jesus does the unthinkable, and he actually touches a leper with his hands. What is Jesus doing? He's reaching down to the people who've been placed on the bottom rungs of society, and he's sticking out his hand and lifting them up. He's showing everyone else the dignity and value that they have as image bearers. He did the same thing with women. By allowing women to be his disciples, giving Mary Magdalene the first opportunity to announce the resurrection. He did the same thing with tax collectors by inviting Matthew to be one of his 12 apostles. He did the same thing with prostitutes by eating meals with them. He did the same thing with Samaritans by visiting their villages and ministering to them. He did the same thing with the demon possessed by healing them. This is an unmistakable part of the ministry of Jesus. If there was someone viewed as less than a person, he sought them out, he affirmed their value, and he lifted them up. There's one more thing Jesus did related to this topic. We might not think about this, but I think it's significant. Here it is. Jesus became a preborn person. You ever thought about that? Like we know Jesus has existed for all eternity as God. Before he came to the earth, he was in heaven with the Father. And the plan was for Jesus the Son to come down to the earth and save his people. But how, was he, how would he do it? Would he come down in all his glory and just kind of blow people away so they'd believe? No, it says he took on human flesh and became a man. Okay, would he then come down as this strong, good-looking, attractive leader so that he would magnetically obtain followers? No, it says he came as a helpless babe, as an infant. Okay, would then he kind of float down as a newborn in a little golden basket from heaven with angels around him? No, he didn't do that either. 
Here's how the angel explained it to Mary. Luke chapter 1, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is mind-blowing to think about. When did Jesus come to the earth? At the moment of conception. When did Jesus become a person? At the moment of conception. So when did Jesus begin to bear God's image as a human being? I think there's no doubt. At the moment of conception. And it's fascinating that science continues to confirm what the Bible teaches. They continue to make new discoveries about life in the womb and, and continue to affirm that from the moment of conception, it wasn't just Jesus, but all preborn persons, persons begin to display and do things that a person's do. Listen to this. For example, we know that by 20 weeks from conception, some think even earlier, the baby in the womb can feel pain. At 18 weeks, the baby can hear sounds. At 12 weeks, the baby can suck his or her thumb. At 10 weeks, fingernails begin to grow. At nine weeks, all essential organs have formed and begun to grow. At 45 days, brain waves can be detected. And at just 21 days, before most women even know they're pregnant, the heart begins to beat. At the very moment, Sperm fertilizes the egg. This new life has its own unique DNA separate from both mother and father. It has its own unique living organism, person. Look, that is true of you and me and every single person who has ever lived, including Jesus. Jesus demonstrated the value of every preborn person by becoming an embryo and a fetus and a preborn person himself. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. So Jesus in the womb was not an accident or a potential person or a choice. He was a life who reflected the image of God perfectly and would go on to secure our salvation through the cross and resurrection. There is no cross Jesus or resurrected Jesus without preborn Jesus. Here's the third and last question today. Number three, what did Jesus command? And here's the first thing we see that Jesus commands. Jesus called us to act on behalf of the defenseless. We find this call in perhaps the most famous story Jesus ever told. It's a story we know is the Good Samaritan. I bet you know the story, but we often miss, up, miss the setup of the story. Now listen to this from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The whole parable is set up with that one question. Who is my neighbor? And the text tells us he asked this, not in good faith, but to justify himself. He wasn't looking for an answer. He wanted to make himself look good to see who he could and couldn't love or didn't, didn't, didn't have to love. So Jesus, as he always did, he knew, he knew this man's intentions and he told the story that cut right to the heart. 
Every detail of this parable was intentionally crafted to make a surprising point about what it means to love your neighbor. You remember the story? A man is traveling down the road when he's robbed, beat up, and left for dead. So a priest comes walking down that same road, a high and holy man, and what does he do? He ignores the man and walks down the other side. Next, a Levite comes down the road. This is the assistant to the high and holy man. What does he do? He ignores the man and walks down the other side. And finally, a Samaritan comes by. Because of cultural, ethnic, and religious differences, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. So a Samaritan would have been the last person on earth to help this dying Jewish man, and he would have been the last person on earth that the Jews would have wanted to hear as the hero of this story. But he's the one who stops. He sees him. He has compassion on him. He takes him to an inn. He cares for him. And here's how Jesus ends the parable. Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, which of these three people do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So what does it mean to love your neighbor? It means to love everybody. Yes, but there's more. It means to love people who are in need. Yes, but there's more. To love your neighbor means to defend and care for, to act on behalf of the one who is defenseless, despite how distant or different they may be from you. And I believe wholeheartedly that the pre-born person, the baby in the womb today, is the most defenseless, voiceless, and at-risk person, person in all of society. And that is more true than ever before in our own state, in our own county Last year in 2022, over 12,000 abortions were performed in Kansas, most of them right up the road. That was a 57% increase in one year. That increase was due entirely to people who drove out of state here. Most of those people came from Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri, and they drove to our state because we are the Midwest abortion capital. Now, there are some, in fact, most of our state, especially most of Johnson County, who see this as a good thing. They see this as a sign of progress. They say that abortion is about reproductive rights. It's, it's health care for the woman. They say it's a private decision between a woman and her doctor, and the government should stay out of it. They even say it's empowering because it's about bodily autonomy and not allowing others to control women's bodies. I hope you can see by now why that's completely illogical. The truth is, abortion is anti-science. It's anti-woman. It's anti-progress. It's anti-human rights, anti-family, anti-children, anti-bodily autonomy for the fetus, anti-empowering for the fetus, anti-everything for the one who loses their life. What this whole thing comes down to is really one simple question. I know there's a lot of debate and people talk about weeks and what about this situation? What about this kind of woman? What if this happens? But here's what it really all comes down to is this. When a woman becomes pregnant, regardless of how it happens, what is she pregnant with? 
What is that inside of her? What is the preborn? Look, if the preborn is not a person, if it's something else, then abortion is fine. No justification is needed. It's all just politics. People should be able to do what they want. But if the preborn is a person made in the image of God, then there is no justification for abortion, period. It's the murder of an innocent life. And no one has that right. That's not a choice we allow anyone else to make in society. Like if someone no longer wants their toddler, do we allow them to take them and put them down? Of course not. But why not? What makes a toddler more worthy of protection than the preborn? What makes a person a person? Is it the moment someone decides they want them? Is it the moment their heart begins to beat? Is it the moment they can feel pain? Is it the moment they're viable? Or is it the moment God begins to sovereignly knit them together in the womb? That is the whole question right there, and your politics should not determine that answer. If the preborn are persons made in the image of God, and 73 million of those lives are ended each year around the world, listen to me, I said 73 million every year around the world, then it is not an exaggeration to say we're witnessing a modern-day holocaust, an evil of all history. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And that's where many evangelical Christians ease their conscience by doing one thing, and really one thing only. They vote. They go to the ballot box and they push the button for the candidate who opposes abortion. They put a sign in their yard and we think we've done our part. Look where that's gotten us. Roe v. Wade was overturned, which was a landmark case. It made a huge deal around the world, around our nation. But abortions in Kansas skyrocketed in the same year. Please hear me one more time. I'm not discouraging political action. This issue should absolutely be a part of your political decision. By all means, lobby, vote, do all the things. But I simply believe Jesus has called us to do more. And that's where I often get stuck. I don't know about you, but I feel kind of helpless in the fight. So I appreciated a few years back when our little kids director at the Antioch campus, her name's Tracy, she wrote a blog post about 10 practical things we can do to support life in the womb and beyond. We're going to post that article this week on our website and social media when you, so you can read it. But some of the things she mentioned were things like foster care and adoption, which we need more Christians to consider and do. Or if you can't, helping fund and serve others who are fostering and adopting. Supporting single moms and others facing unplanned pregnancies. Becoming aware of pro-life issues beyond just abortion and advocating for all of life from the womb to the tomb. And she even makes the case that serving in children's ministry demonstrates the value of life. Think about it. When you sit in the nursery for an hour and you rock our newborn babies, what do you say to the world? You say that they're valuable, that they're parts of our church and they're made in the image of God. The point is, acting on behalf of the defenseless requires, well, acting. <laughs> it's more than just 
pushing a button on the voting machine, but it's like the Good Samaritan seeing the person in need, having compassion, and doing something. So let me ask you again. If you feel burdened for the preborn person as I do, what are we going to do about it? As I close, I want to highlight one more thing Jesus has called us to do. And I want to speak to those in the room who have had an abortion, paid for an abortion, supported, maybe even forced an abortion or advocated for abortion. In a room this size, I know you're out there. And I know whenever we talk about this topic, there are waves of grief and guilt that come over you. So it's very important to me that we end on this point. Here's what else Jesus called us to do. Jesus called us to find forgiveness in himself. Those who have had an abortion or have been a part of one are told that it will make their life better, easier, that it's their right, their choice, that it's the best thing for their future. But they quickly discover that is not the case. Women and men who make that choice, and yes, men are very often involved in that choice, Those who make the choice to end a pregnancy are traumatized and often live with deep shame and regret. Listen to me. If that's you, I want you to know there is always forgiveness in Jesus. You don't have to hide. You are not broken beyond repair. You are not beyond God's grace. And you are not an outcast in the church. There is no wound Jesus can't heal, no sin he can't forgive. No shame he can't erase and no burden he can't lift. Friends, here's Jesus' call to you and to all of us because we're sinners too, just like you. Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says, come to me. All who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let us never forget that when we talk about issues like these, we're talking about real people. These are not just statistics or debates to be won or issues to vote on. Let us never forget these are people. And let us never in our zeal and our passion to fight against this, let us never overshadow the message that there's always forgiveness in Jesus. There's always hope in Jesus. Would you bow your head with me?